Thank you, Father, for your grace towards Kathy Hubbard yesterday and today. Thank you for sustaining her life. Thank you for her faithfulness to you. Might you encourage her in her physical weakness and infirmity. Might you give boldness to her heart. Might she trust in you even while her body is weak. Might the doctors be wise as they evaluate her condition and prepare a course of treatment for her. And would you comfort Dave and Cece as they're away and give them peace of mind as they think about the different options about what to do, whether to stay or to come home, and give them your discernment and your rest as they make those decisions. And now, Father, would you give us rest in your word? Would you conform us to this word that, as we will see this morning, is the greatest of all treasures? Might we find satisfaction in it? Might we be conformed to it? We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. This morning, as we begin the new year, we want to be reminded about the importance and significance of the Bible, the power of the Bible to change people's lives, the authority of the Bible to speak into our lives and to conform us to Jesus Christ. The question as we begin this morning is, what do you know about the Bible? In the Bible, there are how many books? 66, somebody gets a star. I'm not going to say gold star yet. In the Old Testament, there are 39 books. New Testament, 27. How many chapters in the Bible? Ah, I stumped you, didn't I? 1,189. 929 in the Old Testament, 260 in the New Testament. There are 41,173 verses in the Bible. 33,214 in the Old Testament, a little under 8,000 in the New Testament. The shortest book in the Bible is 3 John. I heard mumbling. I didn't hear anything definitive. Shortest book in the Old Testament is Pastor Keith. Obadiah. I stumped him. Look at that. (laughs) And he's even preached Obadiah, I think, haven't you? No, I thought you had. Okay. Now I was stumped. (laughs) Longest book in the Bible? Psalms. Longest book in the New Testament? Luke, by verses and words. Shortest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 117. Longest chapter in the Bible? Psalm 119. Good job. Longest verse in the Bible? Esther 8-9. We won't read it. It's too long. Shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. Give me a reference. John eleven thirty five. To read the Bible aloud takes 70 hours and 40 minutes. 52 hours and 20 minutes for the Old Testament. 18 hours and 20 minutes for the New Testament. If you do the math, that's a little under 12 minutes a day. And you can read the whole Bible in a year. Isn't that amazing? Well, that's cool. But that's not what's most important about the Bible, is it? What's essential about the Bible is its purpose and its intent. Our church constitution says what is most important about the Bible. It is, quote, the final authority for faith and life. The Bible is God's revelation to us 
so that we can be saved and transformed, justified and sanctified, to use theological terms. Spurgeon said of this greatest book ever written, quote, The words of Scripture thrill my soul as nothing else ever can. They bear me aloft or dash me down. They tear me in pieces or build me up. The words of God have more power over me than ever David's fingers had over his harp springs. Does the word of God have that delight and power in your life this morning? At the beginning of every year and in the middle of every year, we spend one Sunday each year thinking about the importance of the word of our of the word of God from our in our lives from Psalm 119. I started this um, about 15 years ago, and I realized I was doing it one Sunday a year, and there are 22 stanzas in Psalm 119, and I figured. Um, I did the math. I was going to be in my late 60s before I ever finished. And I thought, I better hurry up because I don't know if I've got that much time. And so we've started doing one at the beginning and one in the middle of the year. And this January, we come to the 21st of 22 stanzas, verse 161. And in this next-to-last stanza, in this remarkable song, we find this truth. When oppressed, cultivate affections for the Word of God, and you will know comfort from the Word of God. What we need, dear brothers and sisters, is an affection, a delight, a satisfaction, a heart movement towards the Bible that is authoritative over us. And when we move towards it internally, He will give us the comfort we need in whatever our circumstances. The previous stanza that we looked at uh, last August, actually, starting in verse 153, also is written under affliction as this one is. And we said there that the psalmist's message for that stanza was, when oppressed, be confident in God to see and respond to your need. Now we also here see oppression, but we see the psalmist here advancing the theme that, of oppression that the readers are to love the word of God by obeying the word of God. You demonstrate your love for the word by your obedience and submission to that word. And when you are drawn to the word, when you follow the word, you will experience the blessings that only that word can produce. When oppressed, cultivate affections for the word and you will know comfort from the word. As we make our way through this text, we're going to find four realities of the word of God, four realities of the word of God. The first is this. Let us find the circumstances in which the word operates. In which the word operates. Now, when we use the word operate, we mean functions. This is what the word of God does. But we also mean a very particular kind of function. That is a function in which it performs a spiritual medical procedure to remove disease. So in which kind of circumstances does the word operate on our souls? In which kind of circumstances 
Does the word interject itself into our souls and expose what our souls are like? Notice what he says in the very first phrase, verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause. This prince can be any kind of leader. It's used very broadly in the Old Testament. It can be used of someone who is the head of a civic group. It is used of those who are in military authority or sometimes in political authority. In this case, it appears as it was also used in Ezra chapter 9 to be a civil and governmental authority. This is someone who has influence over the entire nation and over individuals within that nation so that they can make decrees and then carry out consequences if those decrees aren't followed. So it's people who have civil, governmental authority over them. This is not the first time he has talked about these kinds of princes. Early on in this song, he says in verse 23, Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. In other words, there in verse 23, they were just making plans. They were talking about the righteous man, the righteous psalmist and making observation about his life and saying, how can we undermine him? What can we do against him? And now they've taken action. They're not just thinking about him. They're not just plotting against him. Now they're acting against him. And they're acting against him for the purpose of harming him. They don't like him. They have ill will for him. They are intent on hurting him because of his faith. And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what persecution is. This kind of persecution and affliction is a common theme in this psalm. Verse 84, how many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? When will you execute judgment on those who are against me? And the idea is he has been, been opposed by, for, by, such, by them for such a length of time that it seems like God will never act against them. It's a perpetual long suffering. Verse 86, the arrogant, verse 86, all your commandments are faithful. They have persecuted me with a lie. Help me. They not only are doing things against me, but they're unjust in it. They are lying about me. They are deceiving about me. Verse 157, many are my persecutors and adversaries. This is the world in which the psalmist lives. It is a harsh world, a world that is opposed to faith, a world that is not unlike ours. We also, like the psalmist, live in harshness and hostility, in opposition, and we face persecution. And notice the particular nature about this persecution. It is, he says, verse 161, without cause. It is unjustified. Now, there are times we know both from personal experience and from first Peter two, along with other passages that suffering is justified. We do things that we might say, well, what did you expect? And I don't mean that sarcastically. That's true. What when you do that, how do you expect people to respond? Of course, they're opposed to you. But there are times when we don't sin and we don't think, do things that should invite persecution and we are persecuted nonetheless. And that is exactly the situation of the psalmist. He's suffering and it's undeserved. Now, the question is, what is he going to do? 
when he's persecuted, when he's suffering, what does he do? What is the natural temptation of the flesh when persecuted? You know what it is, don't you? There are all kinds of ways that we might respond when we are suffering unjustly. Uh, Some of you, like me, have been reading in the book of Job this week. And just this interplay between Job and his friends and his attempts to justify himself and their attempts to condemn him. And in verse 24 of chapter 30, Job protests this. Yet does not one in a heap of ruins stretch out his hand or his disaster therefore cry out for help? Have I not wept for those whose life is hard? Was my soul not grieved for the needy? When I expected good, then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. I did the right thing and I'm suffering for it. And we might, we might not so graciously call that complaining and whining. Self-justifying. I'm right. And everyone is wrong. That, that's the temptation when we're suffering, when we're oppressed, when others stand against us. We might complain or we might ignore God's counsel and His Word. And we might run from the fellowship of God's people. The writer of the Hebrews alludes to that in Hebrews chapter 10. When you're suffering, don't run away from the mechanism that God has given you to sustain you. That is God's people in the fellowship of worship. We might run to worldly devices for safety and solace. The inclination of the flesh is always to say, I'm suffering and I did no wrong. It is wrong. It's not fair. What's the inclination of this psalmist? Verse 161, line 2. But my heart stands in awe of your words. The inclination of this psalmist is to say, I'm suffering. I'm going to God's word. Brothers and sisters, that is against the flesh. That's not following the natural way. But it is following his renewed way. His spiritually natural way. This this has been his response all throughout this psalm when he is afflicted. Verse 50, this is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Verse 75, I know, Lord, that your judgments are righteousness and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. 107, I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. 153, look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. 157, many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. Everything in this world is pushing me to go away from you and I'm running to you. When I'm suffering, I want you. Now, I don't, I don't know what's going to go wrong in your world or in my world this year. But I do know that there will be things in both of our worlds that will go wrong. Things that are unintended 
things that we don't want to have happen. Some of them may have already happened and we're only eight days into the year and you may already be thinking, well, 20 was bad and 21 really wasn't good and 22 actually wasn't as good as it was promised and 23 looks to be worse than all of them put together so far. Where are you going to go? When you experience the brokenness of this world and when you are sinned against, And when you sin against others, where will you go? In those moments, run to the Lord and His Word. Here is the source of wisdom for your trial. Here is the comfort for your soul. Here is the book that is given for our seasons of suffering and every other suffering in our lives. Here is the book that is operational. Here is the only book that has answers. Here is the only book that will guide you. If we will run to God's Word then we will also need to see a second reality, and that is the kinds of affection that we need to cultivate for God and His Word. See, it's not just about doing His Word. It's about desiring His Word and longing for His Word. And so let us think in verses 161 to 166 about five affections to cultivate for the Word. Jesus said that out of the overflow of men's hearts, we speak, we do what we love. And since that is true, we need to align our affections with God's affections. We need to renew our minds and renew our hearts and renew our desires so that we can think and act in new and redeemed ways. What kinds of affections and loves and desires should be cultivated? I find in this stanza five new affections. One, fear the word. Fear the word. Verse 161, my heart stands in awe of your words. Despite the power and influence of those who are against him and those who will harm him, and despite their ability to attempt to tempt him to be fearful and be anxious of them, of, he is more fearful of God's word than he is of them. That word awe is one of fear. It's trembling. It's shaking. That is, that is produced by terror and dread. What he dreads and what he respects and humbles himself before is God's evaluation of him and God's direction for his life. Now, let's think just a moment about the fear of persecution. When someone is persecuting you and opposed to you, what is the fear that is produced? The fear that comes is that if I don't change, then they will beat me to a pulp and perhaps kill me. And so the temptation in that fear is if I stop doing what they don't like, then they will stop persecuting me and my life will be preserved. And the psalmist says, I would rather... Be persecuted for doing what is right than giving up what is in God's word. If you think about fear, fear drives us to do two things. Fear can drive us to run away from something. If I go home this afternoon and I make lunch and then I go to watch a ball game and fall asleep... 
And I leave a pot on the stove and the stove catches fire and my house catches fire. Then I will run out of the house out of fear of dying. And that's an okay fear, by the way. To preserve my life. Fear is moving me to move away from something. But then when I get inside outside and I realize that my wife is still inside... Fear will drive me to run into the house so that I do not lose what I love the most, which is my wife. So fear can lead us to move away from something or to something. And in this instance, the psalmist is saying, I will not run away from the persecutor. I will run to my only place of safety. And that is the word of God. Even if that means I suffer. Here the psalmist is resolute. When persecuted he will run towards obedience. And he will run towards the Lord. And notice this is not simply compelled obedience. Notice that he says it is compelled. And the response of his heart. My heart stands in awe, in fear of your words. This is a genuine, whole-souled response. This is his inner man. This is what he really wants. Whatever else the world may do, don't take your Bible from me. I must have this word. When you and I are tempted to run in fear from obedience to God, let us remind ourselves of what we really need to fear and honor. And let us meditate on his goodness. And let us run to him in worship, even if that means more suffering. A second affection to cultivate is given to us in verse 162. Rejoice in the word. I will, I do rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. Even when persecuted, the psalmist purposefully rejoices at the word of God. Everything that God has said, that word, word, means his general revelation, but at times it is used to speak about his particular promises as well. And all of those things, everything God says and everything God promises is a source of joy for the psalmist. In fact, he's emphatic about it. He says, I myself rejoice. He's He uses an emphatic pronoun there to emphasize the fact that he himself really does rejoice. He and he alone rejoices. He intentionally seeks to make himself happy in what God says. Does God's word make you happy? Do you rejoice and find delight in God's word? When you wake up in the morning and the alarm goes off, Is the first thought that runs through your mind. I get to go to my Bible now. Do you anticipate it? Do you find joy in it? By God's grace, those of us who are saved can say we do. But it's not always constant, is it? I love our friend John Newton who honestly affirmed to us Quote, how much time I have lost and wasted 
which had I been wise, I should have devoted to reading and studying my Bible. But my evil heart obstructs the dictates of my judgment. I often feel a reluctance to read this book of books and a disposition to hew out broken cisterns which afford me no water while the fountain of living waters is close within my reach. It is the temptation of the flesh to move away from the scriptures. Oh, brothers and sisters, cultivate a joy in it. So that you, yourself, find delight in it. Third, affection to cultivate. Hate what is opposed to the word. I don't know about your home, but in my home growing up, mom always said or frequently said, don't say hate. Dislike is okay, but don't say hate. Hate is so harsh, bitter, hostile. But there is an appropriate use of the word hatred. We hate sin. And the psalmist here is emphatic in verse 163. I hate, despise falsehood. I hate falsehood. Hate is the strongest of terms he might use here because falsehood is the opposite of truth. We, we love the truth. We run to the truth. We embrace truth. And because falsehood is diametrically opposed to what is true, then we do to falsehood what is diametrically opposed to love. So we hate it. We do not cultivate falsehood. We are not drawn to falsehood. The psalmist says he does not consider it. Falsehood and sin to the psalmist is like green peas to me. Now, I know somebody this morning is going to say, Pastor, you just have never eaten any good green peas. That's true. I never have and I never will. You know how, you know, when your kids are little and they're teething and they say, you know, freeze the green peas and put them in the freezer. And you know, when they start crying, n- n- never happened in my house. Nary a green pea has ever crossed the threshold of my house in adulthood. I ate enough that I had to as a child. I'll never eat them again. I despise, dislike, abhor, dare I say it, mom's not listening. I hate them. And brothers and sisters... That ought to be our attitude about falsehood. Anything that is false. Anything that is opposed to God. It's not just lying. It is opposition to God. It is a distortion of God's truth. And that's really wide, isn't it? Anything that distorts what God has said, we hate. He doesn't just say, I hate it. He's being emphatic, isn't he? I hate and despise it. He has abhorrence for it. He has contempt for it. He has loathing and disgust for all things that are opposed to God. And really, he's just emulating the nature and character of God. If you're following along in the Bible reading plan for this year, you read this this morning in Psalm 5. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells within you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy all those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. All the key words that are in our verse are in Psalm 5. And they're characterized of God. So when we hate false things, 
We emulate the nature and character of God. Why is hatred of sin and falsehood essential for God's people? Because Thomas Manton said, until a man hates sin, the soul is not thoroughly resolved against it. You will not fight sin until you hate it. J. Adams comments, a good, pretty good gauge of one's love for the Bible is how much he hates opposing falsehood. How are you doing in that test? Do you hate falsehood, false teaching, false speech, false worldviews, false living, hypocrisy? Or do you merely kind of dislike it? There are no halfway loves of God. And there are no halfway hatreds of sin that honor and please the Lord. He is wholeheartedly opposed to evil. And we honor him when we are wholehearted against those things. And notice, corresponding to that hatred of falsehood, he says, oh, but I love your law. In contrast to hating falsehood, he loves God's law. Now, think about that for just a moment. That's a really remarkable statement. I don't know many law lovers. I know a lot of law breakers. I know law protesters. I know law benders. But I don't know many law lovers. And the psalmist here says he loves God's commands. That's his law. He loves God's dictates in his life. Listen, he loves that he has to submit himself to what God says. That's not only against the flesh. That's against America. We're bent on protestation. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tread on me. Maybe I'm moving to meddling. I don't know. He says he loves it. You need to spend some time going through this psalm and seeing all the different times that the, that the psalmist says he loves God's law. He repeatedly affirms that God's commands are good commands. Says James Boyce, are you willing to hate what God's hate, what God hates? If not, you will never love, learn to love God truly and you will never learn to walk in the way that brings true blessing. You need to hate what God hates. Fourthly, you need to praise the God of the word. Seven times a day, I praise you. Now he shifts. He moves from talking about the word to the one who wrote the word. He moves from speaking to the one uh, speaking about he moves from speaking about the one who um, about the, the thing that is revealed to speaking about the one who has revealed the word. The light in the word will lead to delight in the God of the word. Well, what is this praise that he is offering? Simply, it is an expression of deep gratitude and deep satisfaction in a superior object. God himself. And why does he praise the Lord? Because he loves him. That's really the dominant theme in this passage. Notice verse 163. I love your law. Verse 165. Those who love your law. Verse 167. I love them exceedingly. I praise you because I love you and love your word. 
Praise is what we do when we love something. If you don't love it, you won't praise it. If you love it, you will praise it. That's why men who love their wives and wives who love their husbands and parents who love their children and children who love their parents praise them. I was talking to somebody recently. I'm not even sure who it was. It's a blank in my mind at the moment. But she was talking about her parents and she said, oh, I just love my dad. I've got the best dad in the world. It's just sweet to see the overflow of affection that culminated in praise. That's what love does. It praises. And notice he says seven times a day, I praise you. And it's not like the psalmist is going, okay, at 6.51, I did the first one. At 8.22, I praised the second time, etc., etc. At 3.03, I got the seventh one, I'm done for the day. No. Seven is the number of perfection or completion. And it's simply the psalmist way of saying, all day long, I completely, totally, entirely praise you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm consumed with your Praise. Praise is often on his lips. And it is stimulated. Verse 165 tells us, 164 tells us, because of your righteous ordinances. Everything God does, everything God decrees, all God's decisions, that's his judgments, his ordinances, are always correct and right. And because everything God does is right, we can praise Him. Even when we are persecuted, everything God does is right. And we can praise Him. That was a psalmist's testimony. And that should be our testimony as well. There's a fifth affection to cultivate. And that is to be confident in God's salvation. Verse 166, I hope... For your salvation, O Lord. Hope we have seen is a biblical confidence in God's salvation. That's what we saw in Hebrews 11 as we were making our way through it. It's what we're seeing in the book of Zechariah. It is not wishful thinking. It is, it is not a desire that is not yet realized but still desired. It is not things like um, cures for diseases and patient loan holders and happy marriages and obedient children and kind bosses. There aren't any guarantees for any of those things. But to have hope and confidence in our salvation is to affirm that God's salvation is guaranteed. It's simply a matter of time until we get it. Can't be lost. Can't be tarnished. It can't be removed. It's sure. And note this. Just because things seem increasingly harsh and just because you haven't experienced final salvation yet doesn't mean God hasn't That God has failed. He hasn't. And the psalmist knows that. Even though he's experiencing persecution. Yet he is confident. Your salvation is coming. Yeah there's harshness in life. But you can trust him. And be confident of what he has promised. Those are the affections to cultivate. What's the value? Why would we do that? What's the benefit? What's the takeaway? Thirdly, I want you to see the benefits that accrue from the word. Also from these same verses. 
He points to multiple benefits. These are not the only benefits that come from the Word of God, but they are some of the benefits that come from the Word of God. And he mentions three of them in particular. Let me point those out to you. Verse 162, one benefit is that the Bible is a treasure to provide for you. This week I saw an article in the Smithsonian Magazine, 96 fascinating finds revealed in 2022. 96 artifacts that were discovered in 2022. Things like missing artwork, a 16th century oil painting of Mary and Jesus discovered in the 90-year-old woman's bedroom, I believe in France, that sold for $320,000. That's pretty cool. Or a piece of rare pottery, an 18th century King Dynasty vase that was sitting on someone's kitchen counter that sold for $1.8 million. Or ancient artwork, eight marble slabs that were unearthed from the time of Sennacherib in the 8th century B.C. And 93 more. I won't give you the whole list. It's pretty cool. But the psalmist says, there is something infinitely more valuable than these things. It is the Word of God. To find the Word of God, verse 162, is to find great spoil. Spoil is booty that is gained from a victorious battle. It's riches, verse 14. It's things that are better than silver and gold, verse 72 and 127. It's like honey for the hungry man, Verse 103, it is, it is the treasure that we need in a particular time. Listen to what one commentator says about the value of the Word of God. It's valuable in three ways. It is found in a time of victory. It is of great value. It is unexpected. I thought I was a loser and the world thinks I am a loser, but I find in the Word of God that I am a winner. God is for me. I thought I was poor, and I find in the word that I am rich with all the fullness of Christ. I thought that it was just tough, 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 and unexpectedly I stumble on the pearl of great price. I find that as one of Abraham's family, Christ's family, I am heir of the world. I will inherit the world. The world is mine. All things are mine in Christ. And so even as princes persecute me, I rejoice. I don't have a King Dynasty vase in my kitchen. At least I don't think I do. But I do have the Word of God. And that means I have all the riches of heaven at my disposal. There's another benefit that has accrued to us. Verse 165, the Bible is instruction to give you peace. For those who love your law have great peace. Loving the law usually brings conviction and condemnation because we don't keep it. Every time I pass a speed limit sign, right, I'm always looking at it. 40 miles an hour and immediately I drop down. What am I doing? 39. Whew. 44. Yeah. Right? Conviction. It doesn't bring peace. Seeing, seeing signposts on the road. While I'm grateful for them, they regulate traffic more or less. It doesn't make me peace. It just reminds me of all the different ways that I'm a lawbreaker. And the same thing is true as we think about the Word of God. 
Every time God says, thou shalt, we're reminded our inclination is to don't. And so we're convicted. But here he says, loving the law brings peace. How does it do that? Because loving the law says, I can't do this. I must appeal to someone who will do it for me. And it leads to a desire for salvation. And this has been what the psalmist has been saying all through this great hymn. Verse 41, May your loving kindnesses come to me, O Lord, and your salvation according to your word. Verse 94, I am yours. Save me. I need you. Save me. Help me. Keep me. Preserve me. I have no life without you. And when we come to God's law and we say, I can't, I'm a violator, then it makes us to humbly say to him, if anyone's going to save me, you must. And then he will. And then that law becomes a delight to us because it has become the mechanism of our salvation. And not just a delight, but it becomes a source of peace, of contentment. I'm no longer being judged by the law. I am being preserved by the law keeper, Jesus Christ. Friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, whatever else you may think, you do not have peace. You may think you have peace with God, but that's not the question. The question is, does God have peace with you? Is he at rest with you? Is he content with you? And as long as you are attempting to appease him on your own basis, you will never be at peace with him. Ah, but you can be. By submitting yourself to him and saying, I can't, you must. Will you, because of Jesus Christ, account to me, impute to me the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that I can be saved from wrath and so that I can be saved to enjoy you forever? And friend, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, I would implore you to love him in that way today. Would you believe today in Jesus Christ so that you might have this peace with God? There's one final benefit that comes from the word of God, and that it is that is it is direction to keep you from sin. While saved people no longer have to sin, isn't it true that sin is the great trouble in our lives? Absence of sin is what makes heaven particularly attractive to us. We say, when we get to heaven, no more sin. I won't fill in the blank anymore. And we long for that day. And we long for the day when the removal of sin will enable us to see God face to face. And yet, while we live on this earth and while we have flesh, we will struggle against sin. Where's our help? The psalmist tells us. Verse 165, and nothing causes them to stumble. Because lovers of God's word have the peace of God within them, then nothing can make them, force them, compel them to stumble into sin. When one loves the word of God, he will be protected from falling into sin. Neither inward nor outward temptation will overwhelm him and compel him to sin. Now, it It may tempt you to sin still, 
But the lover of God's word, the one who has been saved by God's word, no longer has to sin. It keeps us from stumbling and falling. Simply, as J. Adams says, those who love God's law will know how to resist the devil so that he will flee from them. What's the benefit of the Bible? The Bible is the greatest defense against your greatest daily problem, and that is sin. It will lead you in paths of righteousness. It will light your way. It will give you the truth so that you can follow in obedience. It has well been said, this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And so let us cultivate an affection for this book so that this book will keep us from the greatest detriment of our soul, that is sin. There's one final attribute I want you to see about the Word of God that the psalmist reveals here, and that is a commitment that is fitting of the Word. Since this Word shapes our desires, and since it is so valuable, what will we do with it? In a word, we will obey it. Verse 166, second line I do your commandments. Verse 167, my soul keeps your statutes. Verse 168, I keep your precepts and your testimonies. All three of those words, I do, I keep, I keep, all simply point to obedience. I follow, I do, I protect what God says by obeying what God says. I'm inclined to do it. I desire to do it. I long to do it. I do it. And notice that he says all these things in the present tense. This is his reality. I do it. I keep it. I keep it. Even now, I am doing these things. And why does he do it? Verse 168. For all my ways are before you. He is aware of God's omniscience. And that's why he does it. That's why he obeys. Now, that might imply a warning. Don't disobey because God is watching and God will know when you disobey. And that's, that's certainly a true principle. I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Because in all three of these verses, 166, 167, 168, in all three of these verses, he says, I'm being obedient. I'm following you. I'm submitting to you. Your word has authority over my life and I'm following it. He's not walking in disobedience. And I think he is thinking about God's omniscience, not as a warning and not as a threat, but as a comfort. I am obeying you and you are with me, parentheses, to guide me, to protect me, to instruct me, to keep me. You know me and you care for me in my actions for you. We have the word. We have a valuable word. Obedience is fitting for that word. And now is the time to obey. As you think about the year 2023, what's in front of you? What's been behind you that you need to lay aside? What's in front of you that you can put on in righteousness and follow in obedience? There's the desire for God's word that you must cultivate and there's the obedience in which you must follow him. Thomas Watson wrote about the Bible. Read the Bible with reverence. 
think in every line you read that God is speaking to you. Read with seriousness. It is a matter of life and death. Read the word with affection. Get your hearts quickened with the word. Go to it to fetch fire. And read the scripture not only as a history, but as a love letter sent you from God, which may affect your hearts. Whatever else you know about the word of God this day, might you know an increasing affection, desire, and heart for that word that guides you into obedience in 2023 and beyond. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the faithfulness of your word. It is good and it's true. We can follow it. We can obey it. Might we develop affections for it that are appropriate for it and for you. And might we be transformed by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.